doing, man? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, it took a, a while for me to figure out what I wanted to talk about. And, research, uh, uh, research doesn't come easy uh, all the time, especially when you're looking for connections that may or may not be there uh, quite yet. Uh, but it looks like you found something. So what'd you find? Uh, well, uh, basically, I think it's really, really important uh, to talk about what's likely to happen over the next uh, six to 18 months in terms of the global macro picture and how investors could actually um, come out ahead or at least reduce their risk. Mm -hmm. Or at the very least, even for people that aren't in the market, uh, they will have an idea of um, what the scope of possibilities are so that when they actually listen to the media, they, they could actually focus on the right information and make their own decisions in a better way. Okay. So uh, main thing I want to talk about is uh, the impact that all this uh, money that the government is going to be throwing in and the central banks around the world are going to be throwing in uh, in order to mitigate the economic disaster that, you know, in the aftermath of this uh, health crisis. So, mm -hmm. and pretty much uh, the thing is like, we've been seeing probably for quite a while, we've been seeing the U S dollar money, like piling into the U S dollar uh, central banks around the world, really decreasing their, uh, their rates to a point where they're negative in some areas or close to zero in other areas and heading in that direction. And given all the trillions that are now, uh, you know, heading into the, into the um, economy, that's likely going to, you know, keep, the rates um, low artificially for a little bit longer, but I don't believe that that's going to remain intact uh, indefinitely. And I think there's going to be some sudden changes that people will have to prepare for. Like what? Uh, were you going to ask a question there? Oh, I, I said like what? Well, basically, a lot of these low rates that we have right now, they're basically put in place so that the, like the commercial banks and like the big banks that lend, you know, the lending between the banks mm -hmm. uh, basically is kept, it, it's kept so low or negative that it, it makes it nonsensical to actually not use the money and loan it out to, uh, you know, to the economy in order to build uh, you know, new, uh, new jobs and stuff like that. But so far that hasn't happened because of all the uncertainty that, you know, the banks are scared to actually do anything in this kind of environment, but there will be a light at the end of the tunnel. Like if you knock something down long enough and hard enough, you stretch the elastic band and then anything else looks better than the darkest moment. And I believe, uh, based on a lot of the, you know, a lot of the research I've been doing and uh, regarding what scientists are saying about the duration of how these kind of health crises last and, mm -hmm. and pandemics based on like the mitig mitigation and suppression strategies going out throughout the world. It, it does look like, okay, we're in the worst case, you're dealing with obviously a situation if it's completely something that you can't control you're dealing with 18 months because we have advanced technologies today that could deal with that situation 
given that we've already applied mitigation in some cases suppression strategies that could crunch it down to sometime you know in the next uh, month and a half to three months where things start drastically uh, improving now when that starts happening markets anticipate three to six months out in you know sometimes longer but in that area and given that situation um, a lot of this rush of money into US dollars and just, you know, um, an extreme fear going deeply negative in rates, some of those um, strategies may start actually moving in the other direction. They're going to probably want to just be safe and, and, and kind of keep rates low for a period. But, you know, we're dealing with a period that somewhere in the next six months or 18 months, uh, which is very small in terms of like how the pension funds invest for, uh, you know, uh, and it's also very small compared to uh, long-term investors that are trying to save for retirement. So in, in, the, in that context, uh, what I see here is um, a couple of big changes. Number, number one, that if all this money um, is um, basically coming into the United States and actually causing deflationary pressures. This, this actually, those low rates do not actually feed through to the small, you know, to the average investor or to the average citizen. It's really for the big banks to loan out, to build, you know, to help businesses grow. Now, the thing is, if it doesn't actually filter down to the lowest area and you know how you could tell, well, even corporates, like if you look at corporate debt, and I've been following that for a while, whether it's junk bonds or whether it's like uh, companies that are in need of money that are going out long term and then asking, you know, saying that, hey, we're willing to pay you a yield. Nobody really wants like those those yields have been like basically that market is is getting trashed right now, has right. been getting trashed because they're very concerned whether those companies are going to be around now. The thing is, that's what happens in panics. Like it's not every company's not going to be around. That's like the extreme, but that's what happens. So the point, the point is that while all this is happening in the, um, in the bond market and the currency market, you simultaneously have a situation where this, there's a supply chain bottleneck combined with already um, restricted trade. That was the topic for the past year internationally and protectionist strategies. So when you combine supply chain problems with trade restrictions and then add on top of that, uh, the monetization of the debt, which is basically the government like issuing bonds mm -hmm. and then the central bank or the fed, uh, you know, um, purchasing that in the market, in the secondary market that leverages a system and it increases the money supply. Now, because of the situation that we're in, you could increase the money supply all you want uh, during a panic uh, while, uh, you know, people are hoarding U.S. dollars and, and keeping, uh, you know, um, rates artificially low to get through the crisis. But at the end of the day, uh, increasing money supply is not a good thing for a number of reasons. Uh, the sovereign uh, countries have to pay back that debt with interest. And if interest rates start going up, 
in at the long end, that becomes uh, extremely challenging without some kind of devaluation in the currency. Now, some people would say that, oh, well, um, you know, it's, it's not such a big deal because if a lot of people are going to be paying back, you know, in this kind of situation, a lot of people are nervous and they want to get rid of debt. So they may want to pay back the debt. But, but one thing we have to remember is the debt that most people have that they're going to be paying back, a lot of it is going to be mortgages on homes. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is going to be uh, related to automobiles, like, like a lot of those kind of things. But it's not really related to the things they need day to day in order to survive. And those are the things that really count when inflation rears its ugly head. And in order to battle that, rates would have to go substantially higher. And anyone that took on massive debt, including sovereign nations, governments, uh, that actually was monetizing all this debt to get out of the crisis, is gonna be stuck with a very hefty bill. And yes, it's true that in a situation like that, if there was actually a uh, dramatic increase in rates, Uh, you know, in the United States, that would attract, you could argue that that would attract capital to the United States if the rate at which uh, interest rates increased in the States was higher than competing nations. In a scenario like that, you could have a higher, you could have a relatively higher dollar and at the same time, uh, high interest rates, which means that the money that was borrowed in the past becomes extremely expensive to pay back because you're paying it back in more expensive dollars or mm-hmm. relative, or even if the dollar stayed stable or came down, it's unlikely that it would necessarily come down the same degree as um, rates would go up. Usually markets don't all snap at once. You could either get a bond market crash like historically, or you could get a dollar crash, but it's rare to get the dollar crashing and the bond market crashing at the same time. And a few weeks, like a few weeks ago, we had a podcast and I was, you know, talking about some scientific indicators that we uh, are utilizing um, here at Running Alpha. And those indicators were actually flashing that, hey, uh, there is a good chance that um, even though we were in a lot of the dark moment of of the uh, financial crash that was taking place uh, into the March period, I was seeing some, uh, you know, some green coming out on the sides indicating that there's going to be some good chance of a very strong rebound uh, that could take us up very sharply. And uh, a number of days later, and I, I believe I, met, I reiterated the call even a day before, uh, you know, the event. And uh, basically, the market had its largest rally since uh, 1932. But that's not to be surprised because we, we're still a long way to recover to any, uh, you know, to give, to come back up to where we came down from, right. but it's, it's, it's a start. And actually on Friday last week, I actually had the same indicator flash again, indicating, confirming that as we push through, uh, advance deeper into the April period, uh, there's going to be a very dramatic, uh, potential for an extreme rally in the market. Now, that does not mean that in the next day or, or two days, if uh, you know, some fear comes in, that you can't make 
a retest of the low or, or, or a lower low, but the signs are if you combine it with, you know, uh, the health crisis and where the peak in terms of this health crisis is likely going to come in, sci scientific uh, evidence is showing somewhere either in the best case, somewhere, in, you know, into or the middle of April and possibly, you know, really major improvements uh, as we get into the June period and onward. Now, in that scenario, it would make sense that the market would be, you know, knowing that it has that information and the market's already been anticipating some very, very negative news, uh, and, and that's a, a lot of it is already built into the market, that it would make sense that once indicators started flashing green for, um, you know, longer term investors to think about, you know, positioning in, and into the market and looking at which sectors they think might do well, uh, now would be the time. So I would, uh, you know, strongly say if you actually see any kind of sharp drops this week or even non-sharp drops, but just kind of a tranquil market, I would, I would be buying in. Mm -hmm. And if there was a dr dramatic drop, like let's say the news printed something like, oh, this was a very bad day, I would incrementally go in and then in, into the market. Now, I'm mentioning, I'm mentioning this uh, partly because a lot of people think that the market is the same as the economy, but this, the stock market is basically driven by supply and demand for securities. And the government it's pretty much, you know, going to be going in by monetizing the debt, help give, doing fiscal strategies as well as quantitative easing strategies, which they're likely going to be buying up assets and to offset whatever, um, you know, shortage of demand there is in terms of the, uh, the investment public buying into equities. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the mantra is never fight the Fed. And if the Fed's coming in full swing, and may even say that they're going to add even additional monies to the over $2 trillion that they've already said they were going to deploy uh, to help this situation, then that could definitely go a long way in terms of, uh, you know, causing the market to recover. So the, the point I want to hit home is that there's probably a lot of investors in the past couple of weeks looking at their portfolios and saying, should I just get out of the whole thing if this, you know, and, and, and just get out in a panic? That is the worst thing you could do. Mm -hmm. uh, now, sometimes people don't have a choice. I mean, like if they went into the market when they shouldn't have because they needed that money for other reasons, they probably shouldn't have been in in the first place. Mm -hmm. So, but there's a lot of other investors that don't need the money right now. They are long-term investors and they shouldn't be derailing their, their longer-term strategy by getting out in the middle of the panic. Now, after we do get a significant rally, it's gonna come a point where the market will become, you know, into an area where it's kind of neutralized. And then you could kind of see at that point what is overvalued or what is undervalued. And we'll keep, you know, the whole idea of this podcast is to keep people up to date on certain disruptions, whether it's on the good or the bad side. And if I see something that says, hey, we heated up too much after this rally comes in, after these darkest moments, then I will bring you know, that to the attention mm -hmm. and uh, suggest uh, strategies around what to do at that point. But I guess the main reason is that no matter 
how high the stock market goes from here, uh, whether it goes back to the high or much higher than the high, it, it's all notional value. It doesn't represent real value. There's two things that matter as an investor. Uh, one is uh, knowing what money is and two, knowing what currency is. Uh, and the reason why I say that is because a lot of people think currency is the same thing as money, but the definition of a currency is something where you could exchange the value in the short term for something. But in the long term, we know historically all fiat currencies go to zero or head towards zero. And that's why we have inflation in order to keep our economies growing. Otherwise, if we didn't have inflation, we wouldn't be able to actually produce new things that would actually create new potential and allow us to actually survive in an environment where the cost of goods continuously go up. Now, uh, the main thing is the difference between money and, um, <clears throat> and currency is basically that you could only produce money by producing something. And right now, it's quite clear, given that a lot of the United States and parts of the world are in a, are in a near lockdown in some cases and not producing uh, what they should be producing, you basically have a, um, a supply issue. And at the same time, you have a demand issue because people are told to stay at home. So not only can they not buy, but nobody's producing enough of the stuff for them to buy. Right. And obviously, if people are not producing, there could be additional layoffs. Hopefully, the administration and the, and the um, governments find the best resolution to these situation so we don't have a lot of small and medium-sized businesses going. It's obviously inevitable that there's going to be a number of them going out of fear or out of just maybe not, um, you know, getting the funds on time. But I, I do believe that uh, it's whatever the worst case scenario is, that's highly unlikely to play out. So um, is it back to business as usual? Probably not back to business as usual. But should you think it's the, uh, the end of the world? Absolutely not. Um, so what could we do to invest in a situation where initially you may have deflationary forces keeping bonds artificially high with rates artificially low? And I'm referring to the 10-year bond market, which is pretty much a, a pretty good gauge where a lot of investors um, you know, look at um, mm. for the longer term. And it appears to me that ultimately what's likely going to happen is, you know, whether it's six months from now or whether it's a year from now, um, my indicators are um, suggesting that, uh, that if, if we see rates start, you know, pushing back up above, uh, let me just get the exact number here, uh, the exact number here at this point is around we get back up above two and a half percent and right now we're at about 1.34 on the on the 10 year um and that's that's not going to happen right now right now the pressure is for the downside so that's the deflationary but we will get back there when uh once the velocity of money starts um ticking up that will happen when people are actually back out of their homes and actually getting you know back into order that may take until 
you know, after the crisis completely uh, is gone, which is right. anywhere from a few months to 18 months. Mm-hmm. But that's not, that's a very small distance compared to a 10 year bond where people invest for 10 to 20 years, or it's tied to things like mortgages, you know, like obviously mortgage rates would start going up if, if those things went up. And if individuals are holding a lot of um, debt, then, and if it's not debt that's fixed, that could be a big, big problem, especially at a time when the currencies may be under pressure relative to hard assets like gold. So I think the next thing I want to talk about is what is likely going to happen to gold and how would you best express, um, you know, an investment in, in gold um, and, and when might you actually, you know, want to get involved in it? Because this has been a hot topic for, um, you know, several years since the crisis in 2008. And we all know that initially there was a big spike and then gold descended, you know, you know, into the thousand dollar range. And, uh, you know, people were talking about it going, you know, falling apart and never being interesting again, but things happen in waves. And what I see right now is that we had an initial um, wave in gold uh, related to the fact that, uh, you know, treasuries, um, you know, the the yields have come down substantially. And uh, a lot of the, um, growth companies, um, you know, aren't delivering the same kind of uh, total return uh, necessarily. Uh, a lot of the dividend aristocrats, some of them are not paying the yields. Like some of the yields are not as high as they used to be in the overall market. So when you start like seeing long-term bonds and, and some of the dividend investments not giving you a proper yield, gold starts looking more interesting because gold is an asset that doesn't pay a yield, but it does preserve its value over long periods of time. It allows you to have similar purchasing power in the long term. Now, obviously, in short-term volatility situations, yes, gold could go down in nominal value, but it still, in the long term, allows you to buy the same amount of goods. The dollar, you can't say that. It's, it's mm-hmm. fallen tremendously like over the decades and likely to accelerate in that kind of way. So um, there's many ways to invest in gold. You could buy the bullion, which good luck right now. Uh, you know, in, in some cases, you'd have to be paying, you know, over $2,300 an ounce for the bullion because it just doesn't, you can't get a hold of it. And because people are hoarding it because of this situation that we're in right now. So uh, even though when you look at the screen and at the futures, it doesn't show 2300 because those are paper assets. So there's another way to get involved in gold. You could also buy a gold ETF, which holds a basket of gold equities. They could be large cap equities or they could be small cap equities. And then the other way you could own gold is you could own it through royalty trusts or streaming companies, which basically aren't in the business of producing the gold, but they actually provide financing to gold companies in exchange for receiving money from the gains that they have in in, in their uh, gold uh, production. So that's a very, very interesting way. And then the other way is to invest uh, at the the lowest end, basically invest in the miners, uh, which are producing 
the gold or exploring the gold. I, I based on everything I'm looking at, the the biggest bang for the buck is probably in, in over the next, uh, you know, starting this year uh, and continuing for the next, uh, at least for the next 12 months and longer term, there's going to be waves that are going to be very bullish for that would be investing in the junior miners. Uh, the reason why I say that is because historically um, when what happens is sometimes the juniors get bid up very, very quickly and they have a premium to their net asset value. And a lot of the times the big cap companies, um, you know, have are basically undervalued. They don't, they don't have the premium, but because of the environment that we're in right now, given that cash is king and it's the big guys that, you know, the perceived idea is that the big guys are the ones that could weather a storm in any kind of environment. It's the big guys that now have the premium and it's the small stocks with less liquidity that actually um, are trading below net asset value. So it makes it very attractive for a lot of the larger cap gold companies with lots of cash and the ability to weather the storm to say, hey, this may be the last opportunity we're gonna have to snatch up some of these companies and do some mergers and acquisitions. So I think you're gonna see a lot of M&A activity in the gold mining space, and in particularly big cap uh, company, uh, companies in the gold space buying out junior gold companies. And uh, there are ETFs in the space that are attached to the juniors. So that's a less, um, let's say, dangerous way to play it if you don't know specifically what companies are good. Uh, Running Alpha provides intelligence for picking out those companies, but the purpose of this podcast is basically to provide some actionable intelligence to everybody so that, you know, without having to pay because we have a premium uh, product and we also um, have a product like this podcast where people could actually learn and get actionable information without us. There are some podcasts that will tell you, oh, uh, you could learn about how to actually, um, you know, deal with the situation and then you click on a thing and then it says pay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and the idea here is uh, we've already indicated that, hey, you don't need to do that. You could just go buy, um, you know, an ETF. And, uh, but the thing is, you don't want to do it all at once. If you just go buy and you go all in at once, it's not a good strategy because over the next few months, there's a lot of moving parts that are going on. There's a lot of unknowns. We do know we're going to come out of this crisis uh, one way or the other, either uh, you know, this thing is going to rip through the population and hopefully not have too much tragedy because of some of these suppression strategies the government is employing on, on, on the citizens, or you're going to have a vaccine that comes sooner or later, but most people are saying it's in the period of, you know, six to 18 months. And the, the idea is that once this is over, as I said before, you're going to have that inflationary spiral that could kick in after this deflationary period. And that is tremendously good for gold. So is deflation, which is partly why gold is going up right now, but it's not necessarily the, the, um, the type of action that really gets you going because if long-term the economy, 
we are at late stage in the business cycle. And if the economy starts slowing down at some point, because that's just naturally what it does. It's not a, it's not a terrible thing. It just means you just have to change your strategies around a period of recession that could kick in over, you know, at some point after this big rally. And, uh, and then if that happens, then you may get slower growth at the same time that all these strong money policies are translating into higher velocity of money. And uh, basically that would actually increase inflation, slower growth that would create a stagflationary environment, potentially something that we haven't seen for, for many, many decades. And uh, I would not be surprised that when we advance into that cycle, that we get a very fast initial shock that would really shock people. Because right now we're at 1.34. If you burst above two and a half, we're very likely going to have a shock. That's going to take us to about six and a half percent on the 10 year bonds and longer term, perhaps as high as 9% or higher. And this could happen over a very, very short period because so many people are on one side of the trade and when the trade when and when the trade turns the other way there'll be not only short covering rallies but there's going to be forces in play in the supply and demand side of the economy that will make it very difficult to curtail so you, you just want to make sure that before we get into that environment that you have some asset allocation in hard assets that perform well in that environment so that you could weather that inflationary storm in a slow growth period. So it's all about preparing for the worst case. And I, I think it's actually more than just like, it's not about like, I'm not saying that it's the end. I'm just saying that, hey, there's something you could do about this. And you could, um, you know, not make things so difficult in you when there is a recession. So that's pretty much what I wanted to say um, about, um, you know, the inflation situation and the money printing and that it's not the end of the world. Uh, and the only other thing I wanted to talk about today really, really quickly and switching 180 degrees <laughs> is that what areas are likely going to, what sectors could actually do well while we're in this crisis and coming out of the crisis. And let's first talk about the obvious. Well, when you're in the crisis, uh, it's clear that when people are trying to solve a problem that we have, you would expect the medical supply companies, the companies that are innovating to come out with um, that, you know, new vaccines or new viral treatments or new, or the ability to speed up the testing of pandemics. Cause this is unlikely going to be the last pandemic earth is ever going to see. I mean, we are expanding into territories of the world that are remote and the more interaction humans have with those remote territories where animals lie, where viruses have been breeding for years that no humans have interacted to, it's just a matter of time before there's another jump between animal and human. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what happened in, you know, in this situation happened to do with a, a you know, supposedly um, wild, you know, wild animals that were being sold from a, uh, at, at a market. Uh, but it could also be that if we start navigating into territories in the world that are very, very remote and we move in there, that, that there could be another reason. So we always want to make sure that there's companies 
that are vibrant in the area, always working on the latest generation of technologies that could actually um, help us suppress some of these problems. And that would be biotechnology, medical supply companies. And it would also be personal care product companies. We, we see right now there's a huge supply problem. Like I tried to go and buy some Clorox, uh, you know, cleaning stuff and I, you can't find it anywhere. In, in the city here. So really, mm. yeah, not where we are. It's been like they, they, people have hoarded it completely and, and, or they're in lines at two in the morning picking us. <laughs> it's a <like>, <laughs> crazy stuff going on. So, so the, the, the point is that, uh, yeah, personal care products looks interesting. It's something to look at, you know, coming out of this thing, but not to just jump in and I'm putting the whole thing in. The last thing you want to do is that. I would say strategically, if you had to pick a few points this year to put money to work, I would say, okay, we, we've fallen quite a bit so far. So I would, you know, okay, a little now makes sense. Talk to your professional advisor, see what he, they think, because we don't give professional advice um, on a podcast. We could only say what we see. It's educational and it's uh, informational. But for myself, I could I could tell you like just, for my overall, uh, you know, family and what, you know, we're, we're just thinking, Hey, you want, you, you want to be looking at things that would make sense that in an environment like this, now coming out of this environment, what else makes sense? Well, technology, there are supply chain problems in technology land right now, but the reality is the future is technology. You can't get away from that. And, the leaders in that are China and the U.S. and obviously parts of uh, and the U.K. as well. They do quite a bit there. And Canada is also quite a, uh, a leader in, in technology. So looking at technology companies that got battered down, that have very, very strong growth trajectories, those are the ones you want to be looking at. Mm-hmm. Now, we've already had a tremendous run in some of these um, companies that provide uh you know in access to communication so that businesses could operate um online while they don't go to work and they're at home and you know the big beneficiaries so far have been obviously netflix nvidia because of the gaming people are at home and then of course companies like that we're using right now to broadcast this (laughs) like literally uh, zoom you know so so i guess those are the things but i don't like the valuations like they just exploded in 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 the past little while and and it's just as dangerous buying some of those things that are overvalued as it is selling out and panicking out of the market so it's all about uh you know finding um a point that makes sense in the market and waiting for prices to come to you okay so those are the areas and, and that's, that's pretty much what I see as the next line of, uh, of attack in the market. First, a little bit of volatility and then a very, very sharp move up. The, the earliest I could see a move up could be as early as tomorrow, but I could also make a case that who knows what they're going to say tomorrow. And there's still about 15 days before the best models show a peak in, in this crisis. And then some of the worst models depending on how the people are following the orders of the government could go out a little bit further. So because of those moving parts, 
I'd rather incrementally add around those dates. So, I'd, you know, if the market is still relatively, you know, not too high around the 15th, it's an interesting time. And then again, sometime in June. So we're going to have future podcasts for sure talking about these issues and, and the specific sectors and specific markets and ways of expressing those ideas as we get to those timelines. And because just talking generally right now about those dates, it's not going to do good to tell an investor buy on the 15th, whether the market take skyrockets into the 15th and now all the valuations are too high in the near term, then we wouldn't want investors to just buy willy nilly on the 15th. But mm -hmm. if the market is selling off into the 15th and, and now we're going to be, you know, we're going to be, I'm going to be working 24 seven around the clock, pretty much trying to find opportunities that I can then talk about as we get closer towards there and you will discover on the podcast as we get closer to the 15th, if it's time to add into the market again, which areas to add into. And we're gonna do these podcasts regarding this, um, this crisis as we move towards the end of it. And we will suggest a strategy to get, you know, to get out of it. And then after that part, we will determine once the people you know, start coming back to work and the supply chain start reopening, then at that point we will discuss the companies that got battered, uh, you know, in the um, in the tech world that you know may be very interesting. There's only one other group that I kind of left out that is very interesting, and that would be uh, the cashless payment companies in technology. Any companies that facilitate uh, transactions without having to go into a bank. And, and send it out um, you know, pretty freely and across any geographic territory. Those are extremely interesting companies, both during this crisis, as well as coming out of it. Hey guys, thanks for listening. So this podcast is for information purposes only. It's not intended to be investment advice. Seek a fully licensed professional for actual investment advice.